There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm on transport duty again. This is my third one in a row, Um, but this one is slightly different and I have the pleasure of talking about something that I'm kind of in, I'm quite interested in because I like things underground and trains. And Caroline Roop is here to talk to us about the history of the underground map. She is a writer and a historian, and she's written for several publications, including Who Do You Think You Are and The Best of British. So, Caroline, welcome to History Hack. Thank you so much, Chris. And it's lovely to be here. This is quite a really, really interesting subject. And when when the, the books hit my inbox with, right, which ones do you want to read and which ones do you want to Prep like yeah, this one's mine. I had to fight Alina. I <laughs> went, oh, the underground. I'll do that. No, 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 no. I've got my name on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's really, um, it's close to a lot of people's hearts, but it's also massively frustrating for a huge amount of people who use it on a daily basis. So it's kind of like a love-hate relationship, and I know that I felt that way about the tube a lot of the time because um, I'm an ex-commuter. And I loved it. I loved it for what it kind of was and what it represented in terms of this enormous piece of, you know, infrastructure that's just fabulous, but this fabulous history. But I also massively hated it. <laughs> I hated having to actually use it as a commuter. So, um, yeah, no, it's it's been really interesting, actually. And to be honest, I think I love it a little bit more. Now, it's kind of like this has been quite a cathartic experience for me writing this book because um, all that kind of bitterness I had towards it as a commuter, actually delving into it and getting to know it that bit better has kind of reignited my my passion for it. So, yeah, it's been really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I love the tube. I remember my granddad taking me on it for the first time and then I've been teaching my kids how to navigate around the tube. And the only thing that I really hate about the tube, which is pretty much for most things in London, is it's really lovely. It's just too many people. People ruin oh, everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, trying to get on the Victoria line, head north, uh, Victoria Station is just... You, you, you Grim. Like getting on the last last boat <laughs> from the Titanic. It's like, oh, come on, there's another one in two minutes. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. I don't miss those days. I, I don't obviously live... I don't live in London and I don't commute anymore. Um, I don't miss any of that, to be honest. That uh, you know, it it was the bane of my life for several years. Um, but I think having that distance now, both in terms of time and location, has been good for my relationship with the tube. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I've not been commuting for a year now, and I I, I can thoroughly. I quite enjoy. Yeah, you my- don't miss it, do you? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> No more arguments with platform. Well, with, with the trains and dispatch, dispatches and things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sprawling underground that we have today did not start very well. But were, and what were some of the issues that they had with the construction and the early operation? Well, basically, um, well, it hardly got off the ground to start with because everybody thought it was a really shit idea. <laughs> no, it's true. Everybody thought it was a really terrible idea. Um, it didn't really get the kind of um, momentum behind it that it needed. Um, so even before any tracks were laid or any holes were dug or anything, there was this massive kind of fight to to even get it started. And that happened like 20 years before it had trains running on it. So there was this one guy that was fairly instrumental. His name's Charles Pearson. Um, he took a really long time to convince everybody 
that this was actually a really good idea um, because everybody was like, okay, hang on, you want to put steam trains underground? (laughs) Are you mad? (laughs) This is an awful idea. It's never going to work. And at the time, I think the Times newspaper, they called it like an insult to common sense. They were like, no, this is a terrible idea. It's never going to work. So Charles Pearson, he was like a city solicitor, but he was a bit of a philanthropist as well. So um, he kind of realised that London was pretty much at a standstill because nobody could move for traffic. There was horses everywhere and carts and people walking into London and then out again at the end of the day. And it was like, this is just not working. Um, So he came up with a plan to have underground trains. Um, but obviously that's going to cost a lot of money. So there's a total lack of interest. There was a total lack of funding. Um, they weren't allowed to tunnel under the city, the city with a capital C. So like the actual proper, you know, old heart of London. They weren't allowed to tunnel yeah. under there. Um, nobody wanted to, co- to cooperate. So the various mainland train companies that were coming into London already had stations built in London. They didn't want to cooperate on this. There wasn't the technology to kind of do any of the building works public weren't convinced um they thought that basically the underground was for like rats and moles and the devil <laughs> they were literally like why would you want that's where the fiery pits of hell are why, why do you want to go down there um, to elephant and castle it very much is <laughs> yeah exactly i know it's still like that <laughs> um but yeah i mean everybody just thought it was a terrible terrible idea um, nothing like it had been attempted before. So um, they had the Thames Tunnel, which was like a Brunel project. And that um, that was fine. It was a successful project in terms of kind of engineering and construction. But it wasn't successful in terms of getting people to actually go underground. It became a bit of a sort of haunt of like prostitutes and thieves and stuff. So this was like a, a footpath, well, a, a kind of carriageway that ran under the Thames, the Thames Tunnel, but it wasn't being used for trains at that point. So they could do it. They could go underground, but it's just like nobody was really convinced. Um, but Charles Pearson, he kind of went doggedly on with his kind of vision to remove the streets of traffic. And um, he did eventually get his kind of act of parliament and it, it all kind of went through. But obviously then He needed to raise the funds to um, actually start the construction. And then once he'd done that, he then needed to actually get it built. Um, So this is like a this is like I'm condensing about kind of 20 years worth of history into a very short space of time here. Um, Once they started, um, they didn't have like the big kind of tunneling machines that we have now. Um, I'm sure there's a proper name tunneling machine probably isn't the correct terminology but but, you know you get the idea it's like it's a machine that tunnels underground they didn't have those so they had to use a process called cut and cover which is essentially where they dig under the um existing road and they make a trench and then they build the tunnel in that trench and they basically just cover it up again and lay the road back over the top so they were kind of following the general kind of direction of the road by doing this um but that was quite dangerous it's quite a dangerous way to kind of construct things so they used like the traveling workforce which were the navvies and they were a bit well they had a bit of a reputation navvies yeah they loved they loved a bit of a drink they loved a bit of a scrap they liked fighting um they probably upset everybody (laughs) in all the neighborhoods that they were working in um you know especially places like kensington and stuff where everybody was a bit well to do (laughs) they probably irritated everybody um but they did get it done the navvies got it done um obviously there was a lot of slum clearance as well so um lots of kind of areas there was lots of displaced people because they had to clear slum areas to be able to do this work and I mean in a way that was good because it meant that they kind of got rid of a lot of the kind of dodgier districts but you know there's a lot of people that would have been um you know displaced because of that uh it irritated everybody because um you know they had to they literally had building works outside of their houses um you know it's like any major infrastructure project today people are always going to be inconvenienced, aren't they? And it was, you know, tenfold in those days because they couldn't do it as quickly. You know, it took years and years and years to to do this work. Um, They also had to cope with um, the Fleet River, which actually runs underground. It's really disgusting. 
Um, And that kind of like, um, you know, that burst some of the workings on a few occasions and covered everybody in excrement and other disgusting (laughs) things. So it was all a bit grim. Um, But despite all that, I think, I mean, the death toll was only, you know, in the kind of tens rather than the hundreds in terms of people actually dying as a result of constructing the underground. So compared to some other things, it probably wasn't that, you know, horrendous. Um, But it was, you know, a major inconvenience for London, basically. And nobody really wanted it. That was the problem. So it wasn't like they could kind of look out of their back gate and see the workings go, oh, you know, this is going to be brilliant for us. Yeah. Probably look out the back gate and going, why the hell are they doing this? This is the worst idea ever. Yeah. <laughs> it makes inconvenience even just that much worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it was a bit of a tough start for the underground, but they did get there, obviously, and they ended up with the Metropolitan Line. That was the first route to be constructed, and that opened on the 10th of January, 1863, uh, and that ran between Paddington and Farringdon Street. So, yeah, they got there. They got there, <laughs> eventually. <laughs> um, just talking about underground rivers, and um, mm. did they have any problems with the Tyburn? Because I know that goes through um, Sol not Soul Street, that's outside Gillingham, um, Sloan Square. They've got... Uh, um, if they d- did, I don't think there's any records of it because I didn't come across anything in my research. They may well have done, but I think because they'd had all this issue like dealing with the Fleet River, which yeah. they eventually kind of ensconced in a pipe, <laughs> so they kind of like netted it, you know, they like they were like, no, you're going to go this way. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this is the way we want you to flow because you're ruining our plans to build an underground so they basically they, they caught it in a, a pipe and it kind of you know it's still under it's still under London but it's more contained now but um yeah there was there was I think um I haven't heard anything I haven't I didn't see anything in my research yeah. um it's, but it's perhaps yeah and perhaps by the time they got to the point where they were dealing with that they'd learned from what had happened with the fleet river and they knew how best to cope with it so maybe it didn't cause them that many problems yeah actually without realizing it it segues quite nicely into the second question because sloan square is of course on the circle line yeah and along comes the proposal to link the terminals forming the circle line oh (laughs) Um, they they love this proposal oh yeah absolutely but it's it's pretty (laughs) far from an easy pro- it makes sense and it's on paper it looks fantastic yeah. but it's not an easy proposition and there's some really big personalities getting in the way isn't there yeah so um so yeah they decided um that it'd be really useful for London to have a circle so that you could kind of just travel around and you know it would be nice and neat like it is today um but what that meant was because the Metropolitan only had a line kind of going in one direction they needed to obviously close it up and, and build it around into a circle so they ended up creating a completely new company called the Metropolitan District Line or the Metropolitan District Railway so there's the Metropolitan Railway and the Metropolitan District <laughs> Railway it all gets really confusing they love using the word metropolitan and like literally everything so it's massively confusing <laughs> In my book, I had to like abbreviate everything because it just got really confusing. But um, yeah, so they've got the Metropolitan District Railway. That's created. um, And the idea was that the two companies would work together. They would cooperate to build this kind of circle line. But unfortunately, they were managed by two um, gentlemen who didn't really see eye to eye. So in one corner, you had Sir Edward Watkin. He was for the Metropolitan Railway. And then in the other corner, you had James Starts Forbes, and he was of the District Railway. So these two guys, they both got interested in kind of mainline railways. They're both quite ambitious. They're like ruthless businessmen, but they didn't get along. They were rivals, basically rival businessmen. So where they were supposed to be working together to bring this like scheme to fruition for the benefit of London, they actually ended up just making each other's lives like really, really difficult and just making it really hard for everybody. Um, they did get there eventually, but it didn't open. The Circle Line didn't actually open until 1884. So bearing in mind that the original line opened in 1863, that's quite a long time. 
yeah yeah for what should be the kind of get an actual circle but they did get there i mean i think for a little while they just had a horseshoe shape because they couldn't like they couldn't bring themselves to kind of like come together and it up it's ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) but they did they did get there but it uh, yeah i mean it took a lot of wrangling and and fighting and they were arguing over costs who was responsible for what I mean it all just got really nasty um but they did eventually close it up and we did get the circle line that we have today more or less that we have today I mean obviously it's been extended and stuff but yeah so that was how that came about not without a lot of hassle yeah it's never easy with with uh private companies and personalities getting in the way i know it's a running theme for the underground is just like everybody's just harassing everybody else i mean it's just i mean this has gone on for yeah forever especially in the early years maybe not so much now but like in in the early days of the underground for the first kind of hundred years or so it was um there was quite a lot of kind of wrangling and dodgy dealings going on (laughs) (laughs) doesn't sound like business in london at all (laughs) before I get sued um so the first <laughs> map come out some 10 years after the lines opened how good were they at helping people navigate the network um pretty awful actually Chris <laughs> pretty bad <laughs> it's the honest truth um no the problem they had with the mapping um and the reason this wasn't really effectively rectified until Beck came along um in the 1930s is that they use very traditional methods of mapping um, to map the underground. So they would literally just draw the route on top of a normal kind of map, a street level map, um, which meant that it was really cluttered. Um, you know, it was difficult to kind of pick out details, difficult to see where stations were. There was loads of like superfluous information on there that they didn't actually need. Um so and each company would produce their own map as well so the metropolitan railway would produce a map and the metropolitan district railway would produce a map um and then obviously other um railway companies came along later to build the other lines so everybody had their own maps there's no kind of cohesion there was no branding um and we'll I'm, we'll probably come on to that later but you know obviously now we recognize that there's like a london transport brand or transport for london i should say as it is now um and you know we we recognize those kind of iconographies that they use like the the logo the roundel is called officially and the signage and everything like that and the typefaces they use they didn't have any of that in the 19th century so it was all a bit kind of like mishmash of like styles and designs and stuff so yeah it was all a bit confusing to be honest it was just a distraction having this kind of street level detail on the maps because you don't see any of that underground all you really need to know is like the direction you're heading in and what the connections are you don't need to know where Nelson's column is and well you do if you're trying to get there but do you know what I mean you don't need to see it on the map (laughs) it's it's a lot of unnecessary detail but exactly yeah with different co- companies covering different sections i can imagine that they they'd only really put the roots on and sort of dull the competitors yeah yeah absolutely yeah so they'd use like a really bold kind of like color they'd use like a really thick pen you know just like this is us here this is where our route is and then for everybody else they'd either leave them off completely so they'd leave the rival company off or they'd put like a really kind of insubstantial kind of like pencil line this is the other route but you don't need that you just want to see ours <laughs> it was that kind of attitude <laughs> but you get different signage as well at the stations for different um for the different companies and then a different booking office you can't just could you just like buy a ticket just to ride the tube or you had to buy no no yeah so so once you've got once you've finished on one route if you needed to like get on another one you couldn't just carry on on the same ticket you'd have to literally like get off and then go to a booking office for the other rival company and then get back on and you know it was all just it was all a bit silly to be honest totally silly (laughs) (laughs) ready to pop the question 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We, we get quite a lot of American influence as well uh, coming in. How does that impact the fledging network? Yeah, so... Um... The Americans, I mean, obviously they bring with them quite a lot of money and that's exactly what the tube needs. So um, there's one particular American, his name is Charles Tyson Yerkes. Um, he comes from Chicago. His background is in kind of trams and streetcars in Chicago. And he was responsible for, um, you know, the, the big kind of infrastructure transport projects over in Chicago. So he brings with him quite a lot of experience and he also brings with him a kind of cohort of wealthy businessmen who want to invest in, um, in the underground. But I mean, he's a bit, he's a bit dodgy. There's some kind of like, (laughs) allegedly he may have been kind of leaving the States because he was being caught up with by authorities and stuff over there. And he came over here to kind of escape justice, probably. I mean, I can't actually verify that. Um, But that is one of the theories is that um, Yerkes came over here because he was trying to kind of run away from a few things back in Chicago. But he, um, so he creates the Metropolitan District Electric Traction Company. Really catchy name. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely one that's going to stick in everybody's imaginations. Um, and he buys up shares in the district um, and he basically ousts the chairman, which is James Starts Forbes, who was the rival of Edward Watkin of Metropolitan. So he kind of gets his um, gets some fingers in the pie of the district. Um, but he's quite good in that he's quite sort of he's quite proactive with the underground. So he manages to finish off the Bakerloo line, um, which had been abandoned due to um, its owner basically committing suicide in a courtroom. Oh, yeah, I remember we, did you I read was, about this in the book? Yeah, that I, I, was, I was completely stunned because he. He as well was on a boat to France because of financial irregularities, apparently, allegedly. And then gets brought back to London. He made a passing comment to someone of, they'll never take me from this courtroom alive. And then after, when they went, if I remember correctly, he, they they were going to pronounce... They'd sentenced him, yeah. yeah. And he went out the back and his last words was to someone else of, would you mind? I'll have another cigar. Give me please. a cigar, yeah. And he keeled over and died. But they cyanide uh, <laughs> <it> poisoning. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that yeah. And this is another um, dodgy businessman. Um, so the yeah, his name is Whitaker Wright. He's the owner of the um, the Bakerloo line. Well, he wasn't. It wasn't called the Bakerloo line then. But it, it essentially he was the kind of manager of the fledgling Bakerloo line. He got himself in a right old mess and, yeah, basically absconded, was hauled back to the UK and then put on trial for fraud and um, but decided that he didn't want the life of a prisoner. He'd rather die and took a cyanide pill and basically died in the courtroom. So, yeah, just... um, just some indication, really, of the kind of chicanery that was going on with the underground at the time, all these little kind of stories come out that you just have no idea. Anyway, back, back to, um, back to Yerkes. So yeah, Charles Tyson Yerkes, he takes over the rest of the construction of the Bakerloo because obviously Whitaker Wright has, um, yeah, committed suicide. So he's out of the picture completely. So in order to get that line finished, it takes the American finance to kind of get that, get that all done. Um, Yerkes started building the Piccadilly line, as well during his time um, between Hammersmith and Finsbury Park. Um, He also began work on 
the Northern Line, or what would become the Northern Line. It wasn't actually called the Northern Line then. Um, and uh, yeah, he he just injected a load of cash basically, and and made the underground into bit of a better system to be honest a bit more efficient better lines better trains um yeah and that was all to do with the UERL as well which I think we're about to come on to probably you're going to ask me about the UERL uh, yeah absolutely but before I do I just I just need to throw in this one quick quote yeah, go on. Yertzies, which made me laugh which was that he disliked the fact that the the British commuter Got, so thought, slow yeah they, they thought they had like the time all the time of their lives that to get was, on yeah. the train and he said I'm gonna damn well speed them up and that's why we've got 30 second sliding doors yeah yeah I was gonna yeah I was gonna talk about that actually yeah so funny honestly yeah he correctly identified that Londoners were a bit like blasé about you know getting on and off trains is like I'm not having that <laughs> I'm gonna make you go faster and he literally invented sliding doors to kind of entrap people that were going slowly. It's like a form of torture. <laughs> and here's the reason I've totally Indiana jones it onto several trains. <laughs> I know, haven't we all? <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll, get, we'll come back to that at another point. Um, but the, the UERL, I have to say it's slowly yes. or I'll mess it up. Who are they and how do they affect all, all this? So the UERL are the Underground Electric Railways of London. Yet another catchy. <laughs> thank God now it's TFL. I mean, yes. thank God. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't just do that back then. Um, so yeah, Underground Electric Railways of London. So this was a, this was another Yerkes kind of project, but his idea was to bring rather than have all these kind of separate privately owned companies. Um, he thought it'd be better to bring it all under one umbrella to have a more cohesive approach. So this is the kind of embryonic network that we have today where everything's consolidated under one Transport for London. This this is the beginnings of that kind of process of consolidation, which would take quite a long time and it would take decades before everything was under the same kind of banner. But the beginnings of um, the UERL are in Yerkes' time. But essentially, their main function was to electrify um, the the underground because it was still steam. I mean, it was steam until, I can't remember, I think it was like 1905, I know, the, the Metropolitan Railway, they converted to electricity. So it's basically, it was at the turn of the century where they managed to actually make it all electric. Um so, yeah, I mean, it's amazing to think that they ha- they would still have steam trains um, underground until the early 20th century. I mean, it's nuts, With isn't the it? The that they bring, <laughs> including <laughs> those, uh, breathing problems and bad air. And... You know what makes me laugh, though? It's so funny. They, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, we recognise now these, these problems that that would bring. But at the time, um, especially the Metropolitan, because obviously they were the original line and they were the original kind of steam train underground. They tried to sell the idea of steam underground as actually a health benefit. Yes. <laughs> They were that audacious. They were so, like, desperate to get everybody on board. They are like, no, come underground and you'll all breathe easier. <laughs> it's all fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there was no health and safety there, was there? So, um, you know, they, put, they got away with it for, like, 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, people were suddenly like, mm, hang on a minute, I'm not sure about this. Um, yeah, no, but they did, they did eventually get um, the underground electric, but it took... It took quite a long time. The Metropolitan really dug their heels in. Um, so where the UERL had managed to do their lines by the sort of turn of the century, so the late 19th, early 20th century, the Metropolitan didn't actually convert until 1905. Um, they were the only line that was run as like a separate concern. Um, so the original line, the Metropolitan, they carried on being their own company for the longest out of all of them. Um, which, you know, we, we can talk about that a bit later. But in terms of um, the UERL, they're actually fairly pivotal in terms of not just the um, the kind of electrification of the underground, but also many of the artistic elements that we recognise today. So 
they refitted all the trains they made them all much nicer much plusher they were all kind of standardized they had this lovely kind of red and gold um lettering and stuff um they made the network more efficient um there was this whole change in etiquette as well so like we we touched on a minute ago with Yerkes and his uh wanting to make the network run a bit quicker and he introduced the sliding doors so that <laughs> you had to be really quick and you're absolutely right the 30 seconds he basically gave them like a 30 second allowance to get on and off the train and if you didn't you were basically like sandwiched in these kind of like jaws of death <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't make that mistake again would you um so uh we've obviously retained the uh, the sliding doors on the system today so um you know that clearly worked that was good that was a good idea um a lot of the kind of uh station designs they were standardized as well so they created like a house style and and these are the stations that you still see today that have got the red um glazed bricks on them the ox blood yeah glazed bricks so that's places like russell square you've got edgware road oxford circus lambeth north there's there's loads of them um so i mean and they're beautiful they're really lovely stations um so yeah so that was a yerkes project as well not him personally but obviously got his architect who i think was leslie green to do those um they got better signage they had um Yerkes introduced the patent tiling on um, many of the stations so that if you couldn't read, you could recognise your station where you needed to be by the colour of the tiles and stuff. So that was all a, a Yerkes, a Yerkes um, idea as well. And then also the roundel. So the logo that we use today or that TFL used today for the underground, which is obviously the red bullseye logo logo the red circle with the blue bar that's called a roundel and um they the uerl basically standardized all of that they brought that in um you know made it um you know part of the branding that we recognize today so yeah typefaces the johnston typeface that's used on signage and all the marketing material for the underground that's all from the turn of the century basically it's got quite a long history this stuff but it also feeds in quite nicely because in 1908 you get the uh stringmore map but how, how different is that and uh, to what has come before yeah so stingmore um stringmore whatever you want to call him i mean they're both equally rubbish but his name was Stingmore bless him but he was really good he was really good draftsman um he was the first draftsman to um remove all of the topographical details so he was the first person to really recognize that that was quite pointless having you know like the river Thames and all this kind of extra stuff on there that you didn't really need um and he that meant that by removing all of that, he could be a bit more liberal with kind of like the directions and routes and stuff. So where, um, you know, obviously it was trying to be accurate, as accurate as possible, but it gave the draftsman or it gave Stigmore a bit more flexibility with kind of like where he put lines and stuff. It didn't have to be totally accurate because if you have topographical features, the underground kind of has to follow suit to make it accurate on the map. But if you take away all those points of reference, you can kind of play around a little bit with, you know, distance and scale and stuff. Um, So, yeah, and particularly the Metropolitan line by this point was already kind of like snaking out into the suburbs. So um, they were kind of going out into the home counties, kind of Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire, like Amersham direction. Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to get that bit of the underground onto a map that also showed the central area of London was impossible because it was such a sprawling network by this point, not the size it is now, but still pretty sizable. Um, so by basically, by Stingmore taking away all of the topographical stuff, he was able to kind of like condense everything on, into one map. So again, kind of like going back to that cohesive approach to sort of the network and mapping the network essentially but the the crucial difference between Stingmore and Beck is that and we're going to get to Harry Beck I know in a minute because he's like the main dude of the 
mapping the underground. <laughs> but um, the main difference is that Stingemore's lines were kind of wavy, um, whereas Beck straightened them all out. Um, Stingemore's lines ve- like roughly kind of followed the lines, but Beck kind of did away with that. And he was like, no, I'm going to straighten them all out and put angles in and make it all neat and nice and lovely. So, yeah. Yeah, because um, Stingemore was a bit more followed the geography of where the lines were, whereas Beck, if I would just go straight into the questions, who is Harry Beck and how does he, um, what his how is his map better? Yeah, Actually, so better. <laughs> he, um, yeah, Harry Beck, uh, he's literally like, nobody knows who he is, but obviously it had an enormous impact on the underground and London. So um, I can't tell you much about Beck as a person because he was very kind of um, private. Um, Nothing was really kind of written about him. So the focus is very much on his work and what we can kind of pull out about him from what he did in terms of his mapping achievements. But he was essentially, he was an engineering draftsman. Um, He had a bit of a vision and lots of talent to be able to pull it off, fortunately. Um, he was unemployed when he started kind of thinking maybe I could make this map a bit better and playing around with it a bit. Um, So he used that time and that kind of period of sort of inactivity and unemployment to actually get really creative with the map and kind of really look at it and think, how can I make this better? Um, He, I mean, the crucial thing is he completely ignored like the mapping values of before so he was like you know that it was building on Stingemore's work basically we can't credit everything to Beck because obviously Stingemore had come before he had already kind of done quite a good job of sort of neatening things up a bit um but Beck really kind of you know I don't know he kind of put his sort of finish and polish on it so what's great about Beck's map is that it kind of encourages a mental map of London so even now um you know the maps we have now they're quite far removed from Bex because obviously there's loads more stations there's loads more accessibility stuff going on they, they need to contain a lot of information but the essentials of Beck's map are still in there somewhere in that it's just got complete kind of clarity of use um you know it's clear you can understand where stations are because what he did was he he basically did away with all of the mapping elements um, that we'd usually use. And it follows the principles of graphic and information design instead. So it's actually a diagram. It's not a map at all. It's like a functional diagram. Um, And I talk about this a bit in my book, because if you look at maps, it's not really a map at all. (laughs) It's like a piece of like graphic design. Um, So he took away all the curves um, and he constructed a network of straight lines and they run horizontal, vertical at 45 degree angle from the central line. So he took the central line as his kind of baseline because that runs obviously right across the middle. And then he drew from that the rest of the network. So that kind of forms the sort of like framework for it. Not having the street level detail means that he can play with the kind of scale So um, where the central area of London would be really crowded, like if you did it geographically accurately, it would look really, really crowded. There'd be like stations on top of each other. Like everybody knows Leicester Square, Covent Garden, they're actually really close together. On the map, they look like they're equally as distant as, you know, all the other stations on the network. So that central area is really crowded. But by doing away with all of the street level stuff, it meant that he could lay them out at equal spaces, which makes them easier to see. It's easier for people to navigate. So he enlarged the central area where the highest density of stations was. And then he placed them all at equal distances. And then he compressed the outlying sections. So he's kind of brought the network in, but expanded the central bit out. If that makes any sense. <laughs> so you really need like, a, a visual aid for this but I'm sure um, hopefully I'm saying that as clearly as I can uh, and obviously my book has pictures in it and stuff so you can kind of get a sense of what I'm talking about but um yeah, absolutely makes sense that, that like you said you've, otherwise you'd have stations on top of it but when you're underground all you need to know is how many stops until my yeah, stop so, exactly you don't even... need all the other stuff you just need to know you know where you need to get off whether you need a connection somewhere and Beck was very keen on connections he always used to say connections are the thing they're the most important thing 
But yeah, if you think about it now, I mean, the network is so massive and so um, sprawling, you know, going out into the home counties in all directions, that if you were going to now try and get that onto a geographical map, I mean, you'd really struggle to show the whole... I mean, it would you'd have to make it so kind of like condensed down that you wouldn't actually be able to read it properly, um, especially the central area. So... Um, yeah, so he, he kind of divorced the lines from their geography um, and it meant that it functioned better as a sort of navigational aid. And you forget accuracy and distance. That's the Beck rules are basically forget accuracy, forget distance, just concentrate on sequence of stations, connections, and that's it. Absolutely. And, you know, it sounds really simple, but I imagine it was actually really hard to execute. <laughs> I don't think I'd like to be given the job of drawing the underground. <laughs> no no when you're saying that oh he's unemployed and i was thinking i'm unemployed at the moment maybe i should redesign no that's <laughs> no uh, <laughs> don't go down that road that's a terrible idea <laughs> from the king of terrible ideas um so but as, as the network's growing though did, did in between 1935 and 1940 uh, i you would presume <laughs> that the uh the networks would involve beck and in in how they were doing it so that he could update the diagram yeah so um so his diagram well he presented the first version of his diagram in 1931 but it didn't go down very well um so the UERL were like no this is far too modern you know it's never going to work people will hate it um but he persevered and he tried again so in 1933 so two years later he went back to them and he said look I think this is a really great idea please give it a go and they did and they printed like a trial run and the public thought it was amazing. They were like, this is so much better than what we've had before. Um, so they made it like a permanent thing. So during the 1930s and 1940s, Beck was, you know, that was like the height of his involvement, really. He was very involved. He was very hands-on, became a bit of an obsession. Um, and, you know, during that time, it evolved lots and lots of times because there was expansion there was extensions, things were changed, some stations were closed completely, others were built. You know, it was evolving all the time. He was the custodian of the diagram. So it was his responsibility to make sure those amendments were all implemented and extensions were added. But, you know, he needed to keep that layout as clean and clear as possible. Um, so he had to do away with some of the more misguided suggestions that were coming from you know, the top bods. Um, <laughs> some of those he did away with by stealth. <laughs> so they just like conveniently be forgotten about. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> you've asked me to put diamonds on this map. I'm not sure that's a good idea, but they'd want him to do it anyway. And then he'd conveniently forget to kind of like include them. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Probably like, you know, he's just, yeah, he did. If he thought it wasn't a good idea, um, you know, some of the time, obviously, he had to follow orders. And, you know, if somebody had said, you have to include this, then he would have to include it. But if he didn't like an idea, it would just be quietly kind of like left out. <laughs> They'd probably hope nobody would notice. Oh, sorry, did I miss that off? Um, or, you know, he'd just phase it out over time. So it wasn't quite so obvious. So, because there were some versions that he wasn't that keen on. Um, there was one time, I think, where they, they included, they wanted him to include like a north pointer, like an arrow showing where north was, which is totally like, I know, it's like, why? Just up on that yeah. other up is north. <laughs> I know, and it was like totally pointless. It's like, that got conveniently left off the following map. It's like, no, we're not having that. It's rubbish. Um so sometimes as well, during this period, other artists would be invited to create versions. So some versions appeared like a border on them. Um, there was one that appeared that had kind of like an airbrushed background to the central area. Um, Beck wasn't massively keen on these versions. You know, he saw it very much as he, he was a custodian. It was his work. It was his idea. Um, he didn't like people meddling with it. Um, it never landed well when anybody tried to kind of meddle with the precious diagram <laughs> so yeah it was all um yeah I mean I'm sure we'll come on to it in a minute but um yeah he, he he it was a real struggle for him when other people started to get involved which is what they did with the 1960 new look map isn't it 
Yes, new look. <laughs> Horrible look map. <laughs> it wasn't great. Um, yeah, it was kind of universally disliked, that map. So what happened in um, 1960, it was not a good year for Beck. Um, so he'd had, by this point, thir- nearly 30 years at the helm of, of the diagram and all of its different incarnations. And um, at that point, London Transport had a publicity officer called Harold Hutchison and um, thoroughly nice guy, I'm sure. Very good at dealing with like the artists and stuff. But for some reason, some misguided reason, decided that he could do a better job of the map than Beck, (laughs) (laughs) which was, yeah, which was a massive error. Um, He probably looked at it and thought, yeah, that looks really easy to draw. (laughs) I'm going to give that a go. Um, so basically what I did about five minutes ago <laughs> yeah and then but he actually followed through on it Chris and you're sensible enough not to do that <laughs> but yeah that. Harold <laughs> cheeky chappy Harold um you know he and there's pictures of him in the um London Transport Museum archive and, and he does look like a bit of a cheeky chappy he's got like a cigar in his mouth and he's like posing and he's like hand on his chin and you know he's you know he um yeah he he decided that he could do a better job um unbeknownst to Beck he actually redrew the whole thing um had it printed and distributed and allegedly this was all without Beck's knowledge and Beck was confronted with it at his local station that was the first time he saw it and um yeah it's still it still has some of the principles that Beck introduced in terms of like, you know, the, the straight lines and the angles and stuff, but it's not executed. It's, it hasn't got the kind of artistic panache that Beck's design had. It's all very kind of like stilted. It's um, you'll see in my book, there's a picture of it in my book, but it's very kind of spiky. It's called like the spiky diagram. It's, it doesn't have the kind of flow that Beck's has. Um you know, it's got very sharp angles. Central area, again, is all crowded. It's not kind of nice and evenly spaced like Beck's was. Um, and there's one travesty on there that everybody always mentions, and that's where Aldgate is. He's basically, he hasn't managed to fit the word Aldgate in all on one kind of line. So he's basically run the actual tube line through the word Aldgate and got Ald on one side and gate on the other. Oh dear. <laughs> like rookie error. Yeah. <laughs> Not great. Um, but the problem was there was never any written agreement between Beck and London Transport. So it was all a bit of a grey area, to be honest, um, with regards to the copyright, the, the design. Beck had actually been paid by London Transport some ridiculous sum like 10 guineas, which was about five pounds or something back in 1930, whatever, 33 for the design um but there was never really anything in writing and if there was nobody knows where it is or if it even exists um with regards to the copyright so I think London Transport felt that they could kind of dispense with Beck whenever they needed to and they clearly felt for whatever reason that his time was up and this was you know and he'd been looking after the diagram for 27 years by this point so that's quite a long time um you know it was just a really kind of bitter time for Beck um and he never really forgave them you know he saw that as a massive kind of like breach of um you know their trust and uh, professionalism you know they 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 really kind of messed it up for him um but Beck's design principles they were eventually reinstated although Beck never worked with London Transport again um his his kind of design principles went back to what they were um they were rescued by a gentleman called Paul Garbutt and he did the map after Harold Hutchinson and everyone let outside belief of relief because you know it had kind of gone back to its roots the, the map had gone back to or diagram I should say gone back to its roots um but yeah Beck never worked with London Transport again um you know despite him actually tinkering at home with the diagram for several years after he kind of cut ties with them you know it's almost as if he he didn't want to let go you know he was still kind of rejoining so when they they introduced the Victoria line when the Victoria line was opened um Beck actually drew a diagram that included the Victoria line and sent it to London Transport to say you know what do you think of this you know would you be interested in commissioning it 
they basically ignored him. It's terrible, really. They did treat him really badly. Um, you know, and if they did correspond with him, not, you know, there's none of that correspondence kind of, um, you know, is 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 around so anymore. But we are going to go another way, sort of thing. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of really sad. Um, so yeah, 1964 was the last time he drew the diagram. Even though he'd parted ways with them in 1960, he tinkered with it for a few years. 1964, um, he sent them a diagram with the Victoria line. But after that time, you know, they they didn't want to risk their corporate pride by admitting that, you know, by letting him back into the fold, they would have been kind of admitting that you know, they'd messed up and that Hutchinson's map, you know, wasn't up to standard and, and they didn't want to risk the corporate pride. Um, so they pretty much ignored him. Really oh, sad, actually. Yeah. But, you know, um, hopefully, you know, with my book and, and um, you know, we, we can kind of bring to light these stories a little bit um, because, you know, this is something that we use every day. If you travel into London, if you're a um, you know, visitor to London, or if you live in London, if you commute to London, you know, this is a tool that many of us use, and it's got a really amazing story behind it. So, you know, why not share that with everybody? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and um, it is a fantastic book. Uh, I can fully recommend it. Oh, um, thanks, Chris. <laughs> <checks in place. laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, if you could remind everyone of the title and where they can get it. Yeah, so it's the history of the London Underground map, and it's by Caroline Root, which is me, and it's available from Pen and Sword. So yeah, you can check them out online, and it's in Amazon and all the usual kind of places. Absolutely, and I will, I will speak to the powers and see if we can get it on the uh, History Hack Bookshop. That way, when we sell it, um, not only will the podcast get a slight slice of the money, Caroline will also get more money, um, a bigger slice. And that Bezos won't be able to use it for rocket fuel. Um, so <laughs> the people that matter are the winners. So, uh, <laughs> but Caroline, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really interesting. Thank, thank you ever so much. You're very welcome. Thanks, Chris. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.